I'm Jason Baylor-Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting, conversations on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. Today's guest is Reagan Moss. We had a really wonderful conversation. It was one of those ones where you get done with the hour and you can't believe where the time went. It is about how we explore and expand and push the boundaries of what we're doing in our studios and what it means to be cognitive on all of these different levels at the same time. Thank you, Reagan, for taking the time to be here and the thoughtful, considerate, and intellectual conversation that you provide whenever I'm around you. So here's Reagan. known each other maybe five years now yeah it's, been it's funny four doing, five this, years? doing this made me do you look back like, on go back when did I meet Jason I don't know if I met you here you, I, was, I was at, I was in grad school so we That's met through a mutual friend Lucas Blaylock who was going to grad school at UCLA and when I moved to Los Angeles I lived with Lucas we both moved at the same time so I lived with Lucas for about a month and a half or mm-hmm. something like that and then then you came to the studios yeah, I, think that's what, I came that's and I hung like. out at the studios. I was like perpetually around. And if we are being completely honest, I have always been fairly intimidated by the conversations that we have because I have always thought that I'm taking all this in. You're Thank taking you. well. You were taking notes during the. <laughs> you were taking. You were doing that's the same thing nice. when we were talking, taking notes, but like in a way that was you wouldn't ever let me float on, on sort of my laurels or like just like say a statement and not back it up with actual fact or content. I also think it's about, so like there's huge holes in people's knowledge bases. Of course, Like, like right? we can't know everything. Those, no. That's a very empirical way of living one's life is to try to amass knowledge or amass information. This is like a technological way of living one's life. Right. I think I more put myself, um, and lately I've been thinking a lot about just the idea of orienting imagination towards humanity. So what does it mean to put the ideas and the creativity and all of the work that goes into this towards something that is human, not towards something that is capital-driven, not towards something that is data-driven for capital or in favor of capital, but sort of something that is more, more about being human and what it means to be human. So I think that's something that I try to bring to most conversations that I'm having, if that makes sense. So do you think it's a more honest conversation? Do you, do you feel like it is coming from a place where it the work that you create is going to be more in tune with where you are as a person instead of where you think that you need to be? Yes. I mean, I definitely think you that. You know what I mean? Like, like if we're talking a, market and we're talking... Yes. But, but so, so here's a question that I definitely ask myself, maybe not daily, although I do have this sort of like ticker of reminders that I set my life to, like this metronome. And one of those ideas is, why are you doing this? Like, why What's aren't... What's the purpose? What, and not even in this like sort of existential kind of way, but... Why spend your life doing this? I mean, it's crazy what we do. It sucks. Being, being, art, being an artist is really challenging. If you're actually in tune with art history and some sort of ethic of making, there is a lot at stake. And I think there are a lot you're, of risks that people take to do this. You're putting yourself out there all the yeah. time. I mean, and we can talk about, you know, we talked about before that, you know, we might talk about our other lives and sort of the other things that we do with our weeks and our days. You know, I, I do think about opportunity costs and there's a lot else that one can do with one's life. 
Well, you have to weigh all of these things together, right? Yeah. So there is a, this is one of the things I struggle with. It's very personal to me and I get, I get hung up on this stuff. I get emotional about it. So when we were having a discussion between the time that we said, hey, let's set this up and, and now, mm-hmm. one of those conversations was about what do we talk about? I try to pay particular attention to what the person that I'm interviewing wants to speak about. Right. I mean, you're, you're, so the, the format of this is to voice what otherwise isn't being voiced. Exactly. So it's, that's a generous thing. You had spoken about how, and we will get into this. I think we're going to talk about this as far as the history of everything, but you'd sp- spoken about in this email to me, you were like, this is the one thing I don't want to talk about. Yeah. So, and that thing being the fact that you're a lawyer. And that's right. <laughs> a practicing lawyer. Yeah. But it inherently influences everything else that you do and the way that your life is sort of set up and how you, you, you have your art practice put together as well too. Yeah. So, so to slow down. Yes. The, Am the I going only, too fast? No, the only, no I, I'm, I'm going too fast for myself. My, I, my mouth can't match my brain. Yes. I had sent you an email that said, the only thing I do not want to talk about is the fact that I am an attorney. And then you sort of wrote me back this, this gentle email, but that's interesting. How can you kind of leave this out or that's it? That's a part of who you are and that's a part of your trajectory. And then, you know, you sort of like shook me out of my idea of what this was going to be. And then I was like, I absolutely should talk about this um, because I don't really get a chance to talk about it. What was the what was the initial hesitation? Yeah. What was that initial hesitation? Why? Fair question. I think because so so you're you're immediately going for like one of the harder things to talk about for me. I think that in particular as a woman there is potentially a subconscious bias that exists that women are not as committed maybe as men, generally speaking. In um, anything. It's not generally. Yes, no. It could be the art. It could be anything. This is me reading like uh, business review case studies about yeah, I, employers. I don't, by the way, I don't think you're wrong. Yeah. In that generalization. Yes. Not in. These are generalizations. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's more just about subconscious bias. And this is, you know, people of all walks, all levels of consciousness the ability to self-reflect, I think you can't help but be a part of your culture. So so all this to say is I think the word that is outlined in sort of vanity light bulbs in my head is commitment. And that for women in particular, the word that flashes is subconsciously, maybe consciously also for some people, is she committed. And so I think when I talk about being an attorney, it immediately sort of taps into, it's like a direct pipeline into maybe the thing that is most most used against me. Right. So to fracture into that is hard. It's scary. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, there's other things about me that tap right into that too that I'm sure we're going to talk about later. I feel, I, I completely understand you. Yeah. And one of the questions, even as a man, that I get in the studio is, how often are you in your studio? Right. Because I have, a, I have a day job. Right. I have two kids. I have a podcast. Mm-hmm. I travel all the fucking time. Yeah. One of the, I just had a studio visit like a week ago and the studio visit was fantastic. It was really, really great. Uh, it was with a relatively important person. I made myself of it. I mean, it was, it was that type of studio visit. It lasted like an hour and a half and I was like, ah, this is fantastic. In the middle of the studio visit, we're talking about something and the gentleman says to me, it was two people, but the gentleman says to me, how often are you able to be in your studio? And it's one of those things I want to say to, to the person, What does it matter? You're looking at all of the product of me being in my studio right now. If it isn't obvious that my heart and soul, all of my time goes and energy goes into the thing that you're seeing right now, then what else matters? The stuff isn't 
a year old. It's not sitting here because I've been sitting on my ass. Obviously I'm busy because I am working my ass off to be there and be in the studio and like producing something I am intimately a part of all the time. So I feel you on some sense about mm-hmm. the idea of not wanting to discuss a, a day job or mm-hmm. something outside of the trajectory of what you're doing with your, with your art. Yeah. I mean, I think, so the, the second part of this is me talking about being an attorney also is in some senses a shorthand into other interests that I, I do carry in this sort of polymath kind of way. I mean, this is going to almost sound like kooky, but like the needs that my brain has, like I, I never made as much art as I did when I was actually in law school. Really? It was sort of like this seesaw of balancing certain outputs. You had to make the other stuff to like yeah. balance your yeah. life. And to, to have another place for ideas, another place to to think in. And I, I mean, at that point, for me, law school was miserable. I, I mean, absolutely miserable. I feel like a lot of my peers who are, are lawyers talk about law school and they sort of like bandy about in this way, like, oh, so bad. And it's sort of like this competition to the bottom. I actually was considering and talking to people at the school about quitting and just dropping out because I was like, I, this is not my personality. How long was law school? It's three years. It's a long time. It's a long time. And it was my first LA experience. Oh, you did school here? I did. So I did school at UCLA. So let's go back start over just, well just from the very beginning sure. where are you originally from i'm from new york like new york city born and raised you were i guess i knew that but i didn't i haven't talked to you about this forever ron so. darling the mets the whole thing like when did you leave i did my undergrad in new york you and did. then i left to come out here for law school where did you go to undergrad uh at columbia and did i you... studied art history so i had like a, a nice really? solid the first time i actually had a class with Rosalind krauss but i remember writing something down about the index and putting a lot of question marks, you know, I was like 19 like, what the or hell something. Is this? First experience, but just having that first wave of experiences with such a, a such prominent, a, like a force. She was a force. I mean, she's like a primary source. You know, sort of just get, it's it's enabling, and it, it it gives you permission to go back over material that maybe you didn't understand the first time. Right, because you have the you have the source material. Yeah, there. and there's just like a confidence that is given. Yeah, so I was in New York. And I was thinking about going to a law school in New York. Did you I, feel like you had to get out? I did. I right? absolutely did. So it was, felt like now or never. If I don't get Columbia out. a bit of a struggle to be like do your undergrad in Columbia as well, mm-hmm. too, because you were in New York? Or was it? I mean, there was a lot going on. I, I mean, I named my dog after a building there. So I have like an affinity for, right. for Your place. current dog. It's my current dog. His name Wait, after it. What is your dog's name? My, my dog's name is SIPA, which is an acronym for the School of International Public Affairs. You are S-I-P-A. such a dork. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. So, 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 yeah, so, this is a side. Uh, uh, my family was like, thank, thank, thank goodness you did not have a child and name your child that and just did this to a dog. So, yes, but, that's but by the time I was applying for law school um, and I had this grand plan of what I was going to do, I really did want to leave New York. You were ready. I was ready. And then UCLA was super cheap. It was basically free. Yeah, because they gave money away basically to go there. Basically. And they were like, here, come here. Wait, so you got out of undergrad. Mm-hmm. And then when did you go to law school? Two years after. So, so, I, so I worked for two years in the city. So did you live there for those two years too with the family no, or no? no. You, I lived li- some, you yeah. were living someplace else. I Where were you living? Downtown in a, a 350 square foot. Oh, tiny place with somebody else who is now my partner. Oh, really? Yes. So you guys met in New York? Uh, we met in class, actually. At Columbia? Yes. 
Well, that's lovely. And a, and a, compul- a compulsive class that you had to take. So. And you should mention his name. Yes, Damien. He's, Damien. One, he's wonderful. He's a really great guy. He's very wonderful. Yeah, he's really great. Okay. I didn't know that. Yes. Okay. Yes. So th- so we applied to grad school together. He's an architect. So we applied where we sort of matched. And then UCLA was sort of the... You the both p- hit it at the same time. So UCLA became the thing where you could go there and he could be out here as well too. Where did he go? UCLA. We both went oh, to UCLA. Oh, he went to UCLA also. The same three-year program and it was basically free for both of but us. But you were not in classes together. No. But to save my sanity, to like not spiral into some sort of terrible legal depression, uh, mostly studied not in the law library or any like on-campus library. I studied in the architecture studio. So I had like a little desk in the corner and then all the architects would do architecture. Part of my brain escape of being crushed into this legal way of thinking was also that I took classes in the art department. Um, And that's how I met the wonderful Mary Kelly. So I met Mary when I was a law student, and then there was sort of a return, and I went back. Okay, so lots of questions yes. here. You did law school. Yes. You both get out of your graduate programs. Yes. I assume Damien is doing something with architecture. architecture. Okay. Mm-hmm. Are you then practicing law? Yes, and I was practicing like a maniac. I became a finance lawyer. Is that your a big specialty? Firm. It was. So I worked in finance for five years. Then I went and got accepted. Well, that's into, a long time. Yeah. So I was, I was like committed, capable, you well, know? Yes. I would assume. Yes. I, regardless of anything else, if you told me, <laughs> committed, I would hire you as my lawyer any day of the week without knowing anything about what you do, what, how you practice. <laughs> you are Thank fully you. committed to everything. And I was going to mention this earlier. You and I both have, I think we both have the same mindset. If you're going to do another job and you have to work a second job, you are going to be the best possible person at that job. And fully committed 110%. And I'll be damned if anybody's going to be better than me at what I do in anything. And I feel like you are the exact same way. Yeah, it's, it's also about self-satisfaction. Yes. Like, like how, how do you get the most out of the experiences that you've set yourself up for? And, and having sort of like an associative open-mindedness to everything that you do. I try really hard not to quarantine off pockets of my life. I obviously didn't abide by that when I sent you that email that was like, no, I'm not going to talk about being an attorney. But aside from that lapse, like I'm I'm trying to bring one area of maybe quasi-expertise to, to leak and, and speak to the other so that there's sort of like a confluence of not just experience and information, but of but of liveliness, that they're each invigorating the Un, other. Well, an unex, unexpectedness too, right? Maybe, maybe. Yeah, like you can't predetermine what the outcome is going to be because you've already set up the parameters for the conversation, right? Yeah. Like that's the scary part, but it's also the part that gives you sort of the most joy out of like what you what you get out of sitting across from somebody and having a conversation to begin with. Yeah, and it's also extra material, right? Yes, I mean, an unexpected material. Maybe. Uh, well, hopefully. Well, yeah. So you're so I was five years of finance, finance, and I, and, I, and what does that entail? Like finance, what does that mean? So I was, That's a, very broad. it was financial transactions, any kind of deal structure where capital is flowing in and out. Can so I, papering can, that. Can I assume you're good at math? I am actually, I'm not. <laughs> so lawyers have this joke that, that they became lawyers because they're not good at math. I, I can check numbers, but I am definitely not the finance type. Really? Um, but I do. I mean, I, I learned how these things are structured. I mean, it's, it's Is so, there so like I a... would sit in, in these, these meetings and I would, you know, obviously be paying attention to my primary task, which was getting this deal sort of funded or across closing it getting it across the finish line. But at the same time, there was a sort of other part of me that was hovering where I would take these bizarre notes about 
the transactional language that lawyers and, and bankers and borrowers and other people in the financial hemisphere would, would use with each other. Like one of my favorite was somebody once said, um, uh, we need to consummate this transaction. And there were, there were all these sort of like, uh, it sounds very personal, but personal and, and maybe like double entendre sort of like sexually loaded, yeah, super word. loaded, very loaded. So I, so I had this sort of like list of words like that, that was keeping me busy. And then also like the, the structure of finance itself is rather sculptural. Like there is a way to think about this as, as forms. So like CDOs, collateralized debt obligations and credit default swaps and the sort of like the way that capital flows and tranches. I mean, these are formal propositions that then have abstracted and financial right. implications. Right. But so, you know, like one world is not necessarily hard walled away from the other things flow into each other in a way that it's sort of an unexpected and not anticipated and and that each each sort of field should honor that about the other like that that, that but that takes a certain type of person yes, too because yes. gen, for for the most part it, I, I would expect 80 percent of artists to not be able to run their own studio as a business you, you know it's just they're not thinking in that language well in in that way same with lawyers you can't break out of that structure that's that sort of regimented thought process. Yeah, the, I call, with Damien, we call this, um, and some other friends have sort of more coined this, so I should give them credit. But um, it's this concept of professional deformation where you're this this person, and then you enter a profession, and it sort of squeezes you like Play-Doh into this deformed version of yourself. And I think all professions are all, they all, do it. all sort of spheres of life do this you you become that thing and that maybe the more you can fight it or the more perforation that, that you allow to happen maybe the better off i mean this isn't like a an ethic but the, the better off you as a person maybe will be maybe i hadn't considered that and it's absolutely i think it's absolutely true i mean i also have there are a lot of artists that i think appreciate so much about life and all different paths well, of sure. life. Right. And there are also lawyers that, that have the same. Of course. Like, it, like these aren't like hard. It's cast. not predetermined. Yes. It's a subsystem. It, it really it's is. It's its own thing. So, but so then I worked for five years. Then I got into UCLA. Wait, you applied to art school? Yes. So Why? I was living, so I was living downtown, um, not the downtown that we know in downtown Los Angeles. You and Damien. And me and Damien. And we were living in, you know, sort of like those, it was a straight up concrete box. And it was my studio. Like we were, in, I was in a live workspace and it was downtown. So I was sort of living this, to me, super energizing, sort of like double agent life where I would get up very early. I would go through, I had a Blackberry. I would go through my like hundred emails yeah. from East Coast. So I would wake up, handle a, a bunch of emails, the ones that I thought, you know, were needed, the most me, important. needed me the Immediate. most. Immediate. Um, and then I would work on art for an hour or so. And then I would from your home. Yeah. And then I would clean up and go to office nine thirty ish. That's like starting time. And then I would work. But you, you know. hadn't been to grad school or anything yet. You, no. Did you know that you wanted to be an artist or what was the I, deal? I think I just thought I was. I, I it always, wasn't even a question. You were just no, made. So when I told my parents I was going to law school, that's when they were like, let's have dinner. We need to talk. Have you, have you lost your mind? Because they knew you wanted to be an artist. One of the privileges and benefits of growing up in a city like New York is, you know, in high school, I had an unpaid job at the, the Met in the Greek and Roman section. Really? And it was great. It was just nice. I would just go and hang out with these sort of like friends and look at them. And it was, it was a great 
gift to me to be able to be in that. And then when I went to law school, it was kind of so I guess horrifying. The question isn't why did you decide to go to art school? The question is why did you go to, decide to go to law school? Yeah, and I think it's boredom. I, I was bored after undergrad. You weren't challenged? I, it, I just had like a, a job and I, I kind of didn't know what I was going to be doing that would... So lunch was my favorite part of the day. Like I would really look forward to lunchtime. Really? And then, and that was when I was like, this is not good. <laughs> like there's, there's God, this can't be the rest of my life where lunch is the highlight, the of, highlight my day. of your day. Yeah. So, so, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty passionate about in particular reproductive rights. And so I went to law school, I wrote my law school admissions essay. You have to write one of these essays about two things. They're progressively related legalization of same-sex marriage and meanwhile this is in uh, 2001 so this is way before a long time ago so that was my argument was that same-sex marriage should be legalized and then the the last paragraph was like and marriage as an institution from a legal perspective should actually be uh, dismantled and that was my entrance essay and so i went to law school with this idea that i was going to do something called impact litigation for women's reproductive rights exactly how um, same-sex marriage became you know legal in our yeah. country was through a strategic effort by a bunch of litigators who chose litigation to get into courts to get things chose back. the appropriate exactly the appropriate cases to yeah. actually bring to trial yeah. and then you know I always felt like I was a pretty capable business oriented I don't know why I always thought that about myself but I did and so what ended up happening in law school was <laughs> And I worked for a judge, and I pretty quickly realized I was a pretty... As an intern or what? An extern, they call it. Um, what, uh, what the hell is that? I don't know what the difference is, to be honest. But it's that's the same essential thing. The same concept. Okay. You don't yeah, get yeah. paid. And whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's not the underlying point. You <laughs> no money. You, you do your labor for free. I just wasn't a good litigator, and I didn't like it. I didn't like writing briefs. Was it your thing? No. And then I actually enjoy being a transactional lawyer. I like contracts. I like um, giving advice. I like being a counsel. It's not dissimilar to the creativity that I see a lot of artists um, working within, which is somewhat problem-solving oriented. Oh, you have a problem, and it seems like there's a roadblock, that there's a sort of like a big X in the road. You can't go this way. And so the artist's job is to make a couple rights and zigzag around it. And a good lawyer also does that. And so I worked with also... Uh, his name was Tom. I won't give his last name, um, but he was a super intelligent, highly ethical lawyer. He was such a mentor to me, and he really, you know, took me on as his mentor. Was he older, or was he older? Uh, he was a partner, a and he he had been a finance attorney for a long time. And you know, working for him was it was satisfying. It really was, but not fully satisfying. I mean, these are ways of dealing with the brain in your head and the meat on your bones on a day to day basis. Versus, you know, sort of taking that arc to these little moments add up to my life. Yeah. And, and, and do I have enough And what matters places? out of those moments. Yeah. And do I have enough places to take the steps that I want to take? And so, you know, I was making all this art. And then Mary Kelly is just an amazing artist. Is she great? She's great. And she's the only, it was the only thing that I applied to. Really? You know, so it was, it was, and it was specific sort of to her. Can I get to study with this person who I think? She is an artist that's been around forever and doesn't get enough credit for the things that she did. I agree. And still does. Like the ways that she moves from between materiality and text and narrative for her is, is not easy to do. You knew you had to do the grad school. 
Yeah. For and art. then and then the the people that I met, um, the other people in ID, which is Mary's program, and 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 across the board, photo, painting, ceramics, sculpture, you know, were some of the greatest people I've met. Did so, you did you stop practicing law when you were in school or not? So I quit, and then I think I, in some senses, got lucky that the market wasn't doing well. And the so art market. The entire world market. Just like everything. Everything. Because this was, uh, we got to think about 2009, this. 2009, 2010, yeah. so 2009. When... They allowed me to work part-time. So for two years of my three-year grad program, I worked at the law firm part-time. Yeah. And that was when I, I actually felt like, uh, this is maybe too much for me to like sort of straddle To do a grad two. program and to do like part-time work. As a lawyer, yeah. It was stressing yeah. you out. Yeah, it was, it was hard. It was hard. Well, the, they're am, different paces. I think that's, I, I felt sometimes like an airplane flying at full speed and then crashing into a wall and sort of like dripping down wait, the wall. Wait, was the wall the art school? Yeah, just sort yeah. of like the, the speed is different. And because everybody takes their time to figure out like where they need to be in their work and like process information. Yeah, but I needed that. I needed, like even, even now, did. there's sort of like this this distance that one needs from work in order to to, I, to address it. I think you need to be in your studio and you need to make something. You need to step back from it and really investigate why it's working and why it's not working for an extended period of time before you actually show it to the public. Maybe, yeah. Uh, for me, that is the case and a lot of things. I've had like some of these sculptures that are sitting in here right now. We're in the studio, obviously. I've had sitting in here for six months, seven months. You're getting used to it, yeah. Well, and they change. They adapt and they, they alter themselves until I figure out like... I sort of knew in the back of my head they weren't working. And then you finally get to a place and you're like, no, I'm absolutely right. That sort of trepidation I feel about like putting out in public is a real thing, which is one of the problems with art fairs. Yeah. Right. The because speed. Or the, the speed, speed and the fact that galleries want like multiple works all the time or they want work to be produced for art fairs all the time is that you don't have time to spend with the work to determine if it's ready to go out there. And some of the best artists I know produce a shit ton of horrible work. <laughs> in their studios <laughs> and it never sees the light of day to the general yeah, public. Right. I go over to, to friends studios and we sit and we talk about the bad work they make yeah. and why it is or why it isn't working. And that's the best part of the studio process. Right. Is, is editing. Is yeah. editing and figuring out why it's not working or what's happening or like having a really thoughtful, considerate conversation about what the fuck is going on with this thing that you're actually doing. That thing sucks. But why does it suck? Right. What isn't working about it? Because the thing you just made yesterday is working so well. Right. So what's the difference between these two things? And how can we have a conversation to be completely open and honest, but still have the time to do it? And regular, that's the thing with regular jobs. They don't allow that freedom of... Um, it's, and it's, it's just a... It's a different way of working. It's, it's a, just a different thing. The, the, the constant um, interface over email is it's just different for me the one feeds the other you know we can talk about it too definitely being a parent is also like the the more I think about the sweet loveliness that is my daughter you know the more I think about the world the the ways that I want to add to the world or the ways that I think the world um, can be or should be so you I think mean they're that, all related that influences the work you make how can it not but yeah do I, you is it something that you actually consider so here's here's how i consider it in terms of confidence i mean so the arrows are pointing back to me and my psyche or my uh, yeah. my, my yeah, yeah, yeah. temperature is that there's a level of confidence that starts to solidify with the responsibility of you know being the guardian of somebody you know very special to you and then for me like work becomes a lot more sort of serious 
right. because of that. There, it's like perspective giving. It's about not being the center of your own universe at all times, or at least trying not to be. I will tell you the problem that I have with making work is that I always feel like I have an obligation to make work that is um, weighty mm-hmm. or has that language that will speak to somebody about some greater cause. And I, I, I hope I, not. Oh. I have no desire to make that work. Then you shouldn't. Well, yeah. and I think that the work will speak of its time and like what's happening at the moment, regardless of what I do. Yeah. Yeah. And let, I mean, let me be clear. I don't think that these, these are not me sort of making moral or value judgments. It's more about part of the privilege of being an artist isn't autonomy or, you know, lack of a nine to five or a desk job, because there's also a part of me that likes being treated like cattle and sort of being in my little office. Part of the privilege of being an artist is satisfying the methods and the inputs that you yourself have amassed. It's like like writing, being a writer, writing a novel is, you know, what, what utilitarian, you know, good is it serving, except, you know, in my view, all good. Like that is what we need to point our imagination towards are these humane oriented sort of efforts. So like if for you, you don't need to make your work about something and have it have sort of like a cause. That's not what I'm talking about. But it took forever to figure that out. Yeah. And that's hard. Right. Because because there's this burden. There's this martyrdom that artists maybe are supposed to have. Yeah. You're supposed to contribute to the greater good. Right. And if you're not, then what's the point of you doing your thing? And for me, it it took a very long time to figure out that I can contribute without having to make a statement all the time. Yep. And that's a nice way of putting it. It's a contribution versus a statement. Yeah. I think and, that's right. And and I think that's a long-term goal. There's a lot of short-term things you can do to like affect immediate reaction. Right. But efficacy is not something that necessarily no. should be put in the same room as ours. Exactly. No. We're, we're talking long-term yeah. thought process on everything that we, you should be talking long-term, at least for me. The way I look at it and the way I think you look at it too is this isn't a short game. Definitely Ever. not. No, it's, it's, you, you're, you're walking these footsteps, maybe not linearly, but you know, you're sort of walking them once, but, but sort of going back, maybe all this is coming together around, you know, the way that I work, I think, I think about the access is that I have been lucky enough to sort of amass. And one of them is access to this absolutely insane systemization of civilization that we've developed for ourselves called, called law. So I have this sort of like access into this pipeline. And with that access, one gets sort of, it's like a horrifying visibility of how fragile it all is. The, the most shocking thing about all that is the differentiation between law and, and lawlessness. And I think when you're put through the, the mill of some sort of like legal education or you spend time, like sometimes I just spend time looking at arcane statutes. I mean, you're really looking at the, the horrifying way that our civilization is built slash not built um, slash unbuilt. And so I look for multiple things when I'm making work and when I'm, you know, looking through troves of, of legal stuff. One is sort of these moments where I find that law has built in itself its own sort of betterment, like, like an optimistic sort of view. And others is where law is kind of, you know, discomforting or, you know, funny in that awkward way, like this can't actually exist kind of thing. And then, so one of the ways that my, my sculptures, at least I, I, the way that I think about them is a way of dealing with the excess, the excess between this systemic function and the sort of bumbling, you know, anxious, awkward body that I am. And so the way that individuals are not able to be actually dealt with by 
systems, by legal systems, economic systems, political systems. And then there's only one thing to do, which is make art. That's the way to deal with that gap or that excess for me. That's the output. Yeah, the release. Let's talk about your sculptures. And one of the things that when we were writing, we were talking about this stuff. You said it would be really interesting if we talked about this one certain aspect. And it was the friction between text and sculpture. Right. I regress. He's looking at his studio. I'm, for looking, all I'm, looking, at, I'm looking at my sculptures. But, and because I, it made me think about this. Uh, you're the first sculptor I've ever had on. I'm honored. Yeah. I, I don't <laughs> know. And I didn't realize that until we actually talked about it. But, but I think sculpture is really difficult. And I deal with it all the time. And I, maybe that's one of the reasons I haven't had anybody on as a sculptor before. Because I didn't want to have that conversation. Maybe I've been self-protective and a little <laughs> shitty, um, but well, I can. I, so can I lift you up? Yes, totally. <laughs> you as a sculptor, but I, I, I respect you as a sculptor and the work that you've done. And Thank we you. were together in a show at uh, Greystone Gala through LAX Art two years ago now. That's right. And you had a show at LAX Art six months ago, like five months, four months. Yes. Yeah. And you are currently getting ready for a show at Redlane. Yes. Talk to me. And one of the things for for me and artwork is I'm always very circumspect of text and any artwork because I think it is a quick and easy way to get things across to the audience. I I'm and I completely get that. Like I I do think there's a lot of times where tell um, me tell me why I'm wrong. Yes. Well, I, I, maybe I can't. <laughs> Text is uh, not always used in like a rich way. I mean, I, it is what it is. I think for for me, what excites me, what keeps me making work, is that friction and that that challenge between dealing with the linearity and the written and the spoken and the more linguistically based way of, of thinking and dealing with the round and the lived. And then, I mean, what I hope and the way that I think about making work is that the two aren't, you know, part of this like sliding scale binary. Um, they They're are, not exclusively separate from each other. Yeah. And my, my biggest thing is like, who are you? Like, who is Jason Baylor Losh and, and who am I? And I am a figure operating in space. There is spatiality inscribed in, in everything that I do, including my thought patterns and my speech patterns, and they're, they're together. There's a togetherness and there's a livedness. So for me, I think about my sculptures as these sort of enlivened figures. Like figure is sort of like the word that I, that I came across. And I, I've talked about my work also before as sort of having the operation of sweatshirts. So that, you know, there's there's no sort of like brain implosion when when a person is, you know, sitting at a cafe and has some sort of like political message on a, on a T-shirt or a sweatshirt. You sort of are able to appreciate them as a person in space and also read this. Individually separate from some of the aspects of the other parts that are happening at the exact same time. Yeah, that they're, they're one and the same. And it's that kind of like everydayness yeah. that I don't want to see quarantined out of the white cube of art institutions. Like I, I would like to see sweatshirts and t-shirts or those kinds of operations brought into the white cube that, that yes, when I'm sitting at a cafe and I see like some, you know, older gentleman who very much looks like a gentleman, but is, then has this raunchy t-shirt on, you know, that's kind of like this like amazing sculptural it's a, moment. It's a mind fuck. It yeah. totally messes with you. And it, it's like this, this, this person has these other ideas that I'm, I'm receiving from them. Um, and that's sculpture. Um, to be honest, like when I see your work, mm-hmm. I don't think of the word. 
it disappears into the sculpture sometimes and the word happens to be in presence of like the sculpture my thought process isn't overridden by any aspect of the work it all works as a simultaneous simultaneity is nice Thank right you. yes some of the amazing joy that i get out of working in the transparent media that i get to work in is there's is sort of this like encasement or windowing effect that is able to happen where i can sort of hide a word and there's a there's a looking for the something. Well, because you don't want it to be obvious all the time. And and it shut it can shut things down. I yeah, think. but like I think one of the most important parts of anybody viewing work is this idea of having them be challenged and thoughtful and considerate about what they're looking at and having to discover things and not have it be written out for them. That's true. One of my biggest problems with a, a lot of sculpture that happens today is I think it's a gimmick. I feel that. I do feel it that. It drives me absolutely insane. There's and a everybody, lot of puns. There's so many puns, and everybody goes for it. And there are many artists I could name, and I won't. You look at it, and you're like, oh, it's that thing. And then the next time they make a piece, oh, it totally changed, and it's that thing. Yeah. Like, you, oh, I get it. Like, oh, they're making a thing out of a thing. Like, yeah. oh, it's really not that fabric. It's like a different thing. Yeah. Like, a sculpture is hard. It's a gimmick. And dealing with spatiality is very hard. I, I also, I don't, I don't want to go into pet peeves too much, but I, I do always think it's funny when, when somebody's hanging a show that has to do with like more peripherally oriented work and there's always this impulse, oh, well, I'll make a quick sculpture and sort of put it in the middle. Like sculpture to is To fill just, a space. Yeah, to sort of it's make space everything filler. come together. The, the consideration shouldn't be where does this thing fit at the end? It should be, how does it fit into the process of what you're putting together for a complete vision of like what, what's going on? Yes, ideally. Right? <laughs> like, what the fuck are you thinking? I don't know. Sculpture is, but right now, let's be positive. <laughs> right now, <laughs> well, no, right, right now sculpture is getting like a little bit of a moment. I mean, I've, there's... You think so? I do. I hope so. Maybe I'm blinded by... I mean, by, I don't. Frankly, I don't yeah, care. Yeah. I can't, I can't not make it. Why are you a sculptor and not a painter? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know totally. You've always made sculptures since I've known I, you, I and I haven't known you in a long time, yeah. like five but years. But even a long time ago. Th is that what you always did? Yeah. So, but like from a little kid, the reason I'm a sculptor is my dad's a carpenter. I grew up, the first thing I learned was wood carving when I was like three years old in the basement. Like, it's obvious that's what I that's should what be doing. That's what you do. Yeah, it's just obvious. Yeah, no, that's not obvious. But it took me forever. It took me until after grad school, until my mid-30s to figure out like, holy shit, that's it. So why you? I don't know. I mean, I have like little anecdotes, but they would be this sort of like, if I started to tell them, they would be this, this self-mythologizing thing. So I'm like hesitant to do it. But but I did spend a lot of time in the Met Museum. I really did. With objects. It was, it was on my way. I just would take the public bus across town from the school that I went to. And I would, if I was having, I mean, honestly, if I was having a bad day, I would get off. Did spend a lot of time in the Egyptian wing and the Greek and Roman wing i mean those the archaic sculptures that they have in there i mean there's timelessness and there's something about the worn that i think functions in the way that you know photographs can function where you can sort of tap into this need that one has for like history and time and time and maybe even nostalgia but formally they are super cool and the stances i mean i i did spend a lot of time looking at them so maybe that's it i don't know i think maybe part of it also is I've always thought of myself as athletic and really, yeah, I'm pretty like, physical. Do you, do you do a lot of sports? I always did a lot of sports. Basketball is a favorite. I want, I want to finish a thought process. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. You get done with, um, graduate school. Yes. Second time. Yes. Second grad right. School. Second <laughs> That's time. That's what we call it. Yeah, yeah. Second grad school. Second grad school. So you get done. Yeah. 
you have your art degree. Mm-hmm. You go back to practicing law part-time. Mm-hmm. But you also have a child. I do. How long outside of uh, grad school was it until you got pregnant and you had your child? So I, I, I did want a child. Um, little girl. Yes, I have a lovely girl. Yeah. It's lovely. Seneca. Um, How old uh, is she now? She's four. Okay. So I, found out I was, so I found out I was pregnant right before, like a month before my thesis show. Holy shit. So, so that was fun. <laughs> it was, That's it intense. Was, it was definitely was wonderful. It, it was not planned. It was, but it was. You were trying, but like you didn't expect it to happen immediately before you. I'm I'm pointing to my nose. Yes. Bingo. (laughs) Um, But it was, it was a want, it was like, it was excellent timing. I mean, it it was just. It worked out well. I mean, it was this total production mode. Um, I really just was making stuff both inwardly and outwardly. So you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. You're getting out of a grad program. Mm -hmm. You decide you're going to start working again or what? I, I gave myself time. I mean, I really How did. How long did you have? Um, like a year. Uh, oh, that's a long time. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a year, but, you know, it was spent pregnant and working on things. Financially, and, was that hard or were you okay? I think I've, I was okay, but it's not easy. It wasn't easy. I yeah. mean, it really wasn't. Single. But it was okay. Single person income for like a, yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it is tough. I can't, the, all those things, like we're all human and we all operate in a system, even when we try to not be yeah, part yeah. of a system. And then I had this wonderful child. You have your lovely little girl. Mm-hmm. And then when did you, did you go to work? How long after? Six months. I think for me, it was right. I, I really sort of needed a, a, a good balance. And it's, it, it is part-time. And the work that I get to do is, is good. And my colleagues are great. So it sort of works. It was okay. It was okay. So obviously I have two kids, right? Yes. So and two is, a, I mean, more than it's two different. times harder. Yeah, it's, it's way, way different. It, I am fortunate that I have a partner who allows me to do the things that I do. And we were talking a little bit about this before uh, the podcast started, but it is different for the woman than it is for the man in terms of the expectations of what a woman is supposed to do and what a, a man is supposed to do and how I have more freedom or the idea is that I have more freedom to, to be away from the family. Well, my wife does not. And she has allowed me to able to do the things that I do at the moment. So then she's great. She is great. She's, she's very great. Yeah, she's really good. As an artist and as a mom and as a, a working mom and dealing with all this shit at the same time, there's a lot of stuff to consider. Yeah. So it's no wonder that when we got, I got the email from you, it was like, I don't want to talk about my day job because like I have, you have <laughs> so many more. other, yeah, it's another thing to yeah. like pull away from the idea that yeah. you are a practicing artist who is doing very well. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's like who you are, whoever you are, you do the thing the way you need to do it. I am trying to live the life that I would like to live. And doing it well, by the way. Thank you. You're doing I, it really well. Like it's pretty some days, amazing. Some days more successful. Well, to pull <laughs> off to pull off the LAX art show and then come up with the Red Link show like immediately thereafter. That's not easy. They have been great, and you know you don't make work for a vacuum. You don't make work for blackness. Or no, darkness. I can't stand that. You know, and that you, that is the thing that stresses me out more than anything else in the process. Is I need to show the work. I, I think the issue becomes you can't complete a thought process until the work is shown. Because you'll always be stuck on that thought process and it won't be completed or finished in a way that you can move on to the next thing. For me. I don't, I don't feel that, but I'm interested in that. I, I have a I really... Like this completion idea. I have a really hard time with it. To me, this oh. stuff just... It's like a capstone that has to happen. It's like purgatory. Interesting. Yeah, everything just floats until there is a 
an end goal or right. like a thing that happens to cap off that point of a thought process. Yeah. The idea of finishing off a thought or like completing something that actually comes to fruition after a certain point of time, I need it. I have to have it. For me, the the show is about an I meeting an I. So if I am making this sort of friend or um, this figure. You mean your object? Figure, yeah, yeah, this figure. I think it's more for me about that figure being looked at and, and maintaining some level of recognition. So having that cognition happen at from the an thing. Outside, from something outside of yourself? Yeah, and also, you know, there is a practical side of this. There's nothing like having some sort of deadline to really make you make decisions more swiftly. Well, absolutely. You make decisions differently. But if you are dealing with an object or you're dealing with a piece in general and you think that it needs to be viewed by somebody to have that, um, that cognition or that, yeah. that emotional content, does it hold the same weight if you don't be if you're not there and present when it's actually taking place? So let's say you put something into a space and then you walk away from it for three months and then well, you come I mean, back and remove it. You just know that it's been viewed and that's okay. I think I'm somewhat of a shyer person on the spectrum of shyness, so I I think I do I, I think I do like to sort of put something out and and then sort of move away. I love having my voice attached to things. Yeah. So like the variable platforms that can sort of hug around work I really really like so is that why the language is important language is super important is that why writing the word, is super yeah because you can important. like it's a tangible thing that you can contribute and have somebody yeah and even this in. like there's not enough opportunities for artists to just get to speak no, no this is terms. why I started the podcast well and frankly when else do we have the time that we can sit across from each other and spend a full hour yes uninterrupted to flesh out these thoughts this isn't 1960, where we're writing letters back and forth to each other. Yeah, and I mean, and there also is something very textural about voices. It's just that my voice is in the atmosphere. I mean, yeah. we have these headphones on, and I'm hearing your voice. I mean, it's as close to being in my head as you could be. Yeah, and, and even that it's very dynamic, personal. it is very personal. And then even that dynamic, I I don't know who's going to sort of take this See in. See it on and the other end. My image is not attached to it. I mean, unless I sort of give you one or you separately Google me. Yeah, and but it's even my voice. then, even then, it's. It's so separated from what you are that people will read it however they're going to read it. Yep. And it, from, from that point of view, too, I edit this. So you don't have any control over the editing of the thing you're putting out there. <laughs> are you going to edit out the editing part? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Double no, editing? No, no, no. I do that. that sometimes, yes. But when we first put these on, I mean, there's a distancing that happens. And, you know, all these things are, these are aesthetic things. The ways that one is perceived and dealt with as a person in the world. Yeah. And then the way our voices are different. I mean, you can definitely tell that it, this is a, a woman's voice. But other than that, there's, there's not that yeah, much like what's the, descriptive about What's the it. composition of the person on the other end? Yeah. Like, how do you get where you're actually yeah. coming from? Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. It's a very thoughtful conversation. Like, I'm <laughs> seriously, like, I did not anticipate <laughs> the direction we would go we with We're going, it. me neither. No, it's been really fantastic. So thank you. For coming to the show, Reagan. Great. That that didn't even feel like an hour. Thank you, Jason. It went so fast. That was but great. I really appreciate it, and uh, I look forward to seeing your show. Thank you. 